0: I'd like to speak this evening with regard to really what is one of the primary references for our practice, the fact that we have a body and what that means for us in terms of Dharma practice. We are encouraged and uh, quite regularly, in fact, encouraged to pay attention to our body, to notice that very fact that we have, it seems, this physical organic structure that we inhabit. And this body that we inhabit has the feature, as we've mentioned and reflected on, it has the feature of being here. Of being now it's something that's manifesting that's expressing itself that's revealed in the present moment and so the encouragement that we offer and that we hear is pay attention to this be present connect explore this experience this phenomena that we call body and we can express that in terms of just noticing our posture as we sit noticing the breath that moves in our body noticing what it's like as we walk mindfully back and forth. And equally, as we go through the activities of the day, our body is the reference that we can use to connect with where we are because our body is only found in that location. That's where it always abides. And so body is the first foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha spoke of and suggested we pay attention to and it is a foundation for our practice. I'll just mention also the other foundations are the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that every experience has. This is something the Buddha also suggested we notice because it's this quality that we tend to react to and we will speak more about that over the days. The third foundation is the the quality of our attention as or the quality of the consciousness that we can attend to, the In a way the flavor that our mind is expressing or experiencing and the fourth foundation is to do with the the things that move through our minds the experiences that arise in the form of content contents concepts and qualities that manifest through the mind and between these and paying attention to these we pay attention to the full range of our experience in a way that can allow us to begin to understand it more fully and more deeply. But just so just acknowledging that there's those four foundations, that the primary territory, the primary ground for us is body. And if we reflect on how we ordinarily and habitually re- relate to this experience that we call body or that we speak of in the language of having a body we see that there's a, a very strong tendency and habit to to describe it in terms of concepts to apply labels to it and often on the basis of that to get involved in a process of comparison or evaluation to see how we we talk about our body as being of a certain size or a certain shape or a certain color or a certain texture or a certain volume or a certain mass. There's sort of different ways we can do that. And very quickly following on from that, we, we tend to add a sense of, well, that's the kind of shape or mass or size that it should be or that, and more commonly, it shouldn't be. And the way we apply concepts to this physicality easily leads us, leads us to a sense of comparison and to a sense of in fact, quite painful dissatisfaction with the experience of body based on our ideas about it and the labels we place upon it. But when we directly experience it, that's not what we find, that's not what this experience of body is actually about, because what we find is sensations. What we find is a a vibratory, resonant experience that we can perceive directly, that we can place concepts upon or label we can describe in certain ways but has a more an immediacy to it when we talk about the the color or the shape or the the weight or the size or the texture of our body we're often actually talking about something that isn't our body we're talking about ideas or we're talking about visual images and those are visual images that's something quite different the bodily experience directly perceived or directly encountered is, is to do with textures and vibrations and warmth and coolness and pressure and hardness and softness and tingling and all of these things that we can experience numbness and dullness or a sense of energy and vitality that we experience directly in and through the body. And when we start to turn to the body in this way and experience it in this way, we start to notice or sense that it is actually a place we can come to abide. We can come to rest in it, rather than being an object of preference, which either fulfills or fails to fulfill our preferences about how it should be or how we like it to be in terms of appearances or all those different things that we can place upon it and that cause so much pain when we feel like it's not how it should be. When we, when we come more into the direct experience of it, we can start to reflect on, well, what's this experience that's happening? At one level, yes, it's, it's a, a flux and a flow of vibratory experience. That's what we encounter directly. But what we see with that is a sense of this Being alive, that is expressed in and through a body, that is subject to having been born, is subject to aging, to sickness, to death. This is fundamental to what it means to be alive and to have a body. Having come into this embodied experience at some point, it becomes uncomfortable because of illness, because of injury, because of just the process of aging and you know, slowly, inevitably, and embarrassingly wearing out. That's what happens. And this is something we can tend to struggle with. We can t- tend to resist, sort of feeling of, no, I don't want it to go that way. And anything that we encounter in our experience which suggests it is going that way, we tend to resist or feel threatened by. So what we need to be aware of and reflect upon a little as in this process, where we're asked to really be present with our body, is to see well, what's that touching into? What's that bringing us up into contact with? Because that's part of why it's challenging. I mean, let's face it: if you were to describe your friend to your friends back home what you spent the last couple of days doing, you know, okay, so we sat around on a soft cushion for you know three quarters of an hour or so that we went, we ambled back and forth. And then we sat on a cushion for a while longer, then some more ambling back and forth. Then they fed us a meal and I had a nap and we did it all again in the afternoon. At the end of the day, I was exhausted. <laughs> now, who of your friends is going to believe you? Come on, that sounds like a holiday. But it isn't, is it? We recognize it's actually not easy to do this. And what part of what makes it challenging is that it's bringing us up face-to-face with some of the deeper realities of our life whether we like it or not this is part of what happens here it's not accidental and in that as well as bringing us up against some of those deeper realities it's also confronting us with our relationship to those realities which may or may not be something we're really conscious of but much of what can drive our lives and what we can start to recognize or what we see ourselves encountering in the meditative journey is the (coughs) is the urge to keep this thing going forever and the fear and the deeply 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 rooted fear that we're not going to be able to now that fear has some intelligence in it because the truth is we're not ultimately going to keep it going forever that's not how it is and yet there's this biological imperative to preserve, to protect, to maintain and sustain the body, to survive. And this we encounter, this we see as an experience when we encounter that which is difficult or painful. The sense of wanting to withdraw from it, to pull away from it, is born out of that sense of wanting to preserve and protect. It's like, it's not so much that the discomforting thing is so bad in itself. It's what we think it's going to do if we leave it, if we stay with it, that makes it really threatening, that makes it really difficult. And so what's useful to discern in this process is that while we have this very strongly conditioned and sort of like biological imperative to recoil from painful or the apparently threatening or scary to to try and withdraw ourselves from there, just as a sea anemone when you you know those little soft tender things with the little tendrils and you just touch them ever so gently and they pull away it's like that's what we're like a lot of the time we're just pulling away from that which is in any way threatening or discomforting to us and we recognize that this experience of pulling away, of withdrawing, of contracting is actually quite deeply dissatisfying because in the pulling away we get disconnected. We start to feel out of touch and not surprisingly because we're trying to be not in touch. We're trying to be not connected with our experience because it feels scary or painful. And then we find ourselves with this inner experience of feeling disconnected. And it's easy then to start to judge or become quite critical of that response. And in fact, spiritual teachings sometimes seem to be suggesting to us we shouldn't be doing that. You know, don't have that reaction. But of course, we can't stop ourselves having that reaction. So it's important to discern within this that what's actually going on in that is an attempt to take care of ourselves. It's an attempt to protect our well-being and that there's actually something born of caring in that reaction, in that response. Now, it's not necessarily expressing itself in a particularly effective or skillful way, because in trying to take care of ourselves, if we end up feeling disconnected or isolated, then actually we haven't succeeded. If we end up feeling sort of withdrawn from or contracted in relationship to life, then it's not been a successful response or strategy. And yet, to not become judgmental or critical of that response. To see it has its place, and we need to understand it in order to be able to work skillfully with it. So, we can see this process, how we encounter an experience. It just arises. It's maybe a sensation. And I think I might have in the question and answer session already, you know, used the very common image of the idea, you know, my knee starts to hurt on my back. And in just a few thought moments, which, you know, take microseconds, we, we've projected this into some serious injury or illness that leads to a hospitalization and, you know, long-term incapacity. And there's that sense of how quickly we move from the uncomfortable sensation to the overwhelmingly disastrous outcome. Or, someone was speaking about in one of the small groups this morning that the fear of getting ill, not because getting ill is so bad, although it's not a lot of fun, but because they've got a lot of work to do when they go back home, as probably lots of you do, lots of us will have. And I can't get sick because that's going to be, that work will be hard enough already, let alone if I'm not feeling well or if I'm really ill, it's going to be impossible. And so, then any sense of potential for getting ill. Starts to become really threatening. Someone sneezing over there—it's like bad person, go away. Or a little tickle in my throat—it's oh no, you know I'm a goner. Someone sneezing, or a tickle in my throat, and yet we construct so quickly because we're well skilled and practiced at this. We've been doing it for years, and you know it's a it's a really accessible pathway for the mind. We generate this whole sense of fear and anxiety. And I remember for myself one of the one of the clearest examples of it, and very early in my practice, I was um, I was in India and having spent some time in various monasteries and retreat centres, I I somewhere or somewhere along the line caught something that made me extremely ill, and I woke up one morning and I couldn't actually. Move, And I couldn't actually speak. I didn't have enough energy to make a noise. I spent most of the morning just getting from my bed to the door to get my head out the door so someone could see it. Um, And then eventually I was carted off somewhat like a sack of potatoes to a hospital. And um, the doctors, you know, poked and prodded and took a bit of blood and a bit of everything else. And through all of that I was kind of, I'm sick, it's okay. I'm sick, it's okay, you know, I'll be all right. Um, And then the doctor came in and said, well, we think you might have hepatitis and you may have malaria as well. And in this moment of hearing that, this complete terror of, I'm going to die. This is it. I'm deadly sick. This is it. And that sense of just somehow the whole, you're ill, therefore you're going to die, it somehow got through to me. And I remember the visceral terror of it. Still, you know, 20 years later, it's just like, wha! And yet, I wasn't gonna die, I didn't die. But that experience is, it's like, it's seared into the cells of my body, so that when I speak about it to you now, I almost feel it again. But that wasn't anything to do with illness, hepatitis, or it turned out it was just hepatitis, which if that can be good news, um, it was. (laughs) I was sick and didn't really it took probably about six months to get over it, so it was quite a journey but actually at the point where I realized that oh, actually this is just being ill it shifted and yet it wasn't the illness that's left the longest mark it was the fear really interesting to reflect on that the power of that the impact of that and And then to reflect on the somewhat frequently quoted but nonetheless delightful um, words of Mark Twain who observed once, he said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. And, you know, maybe we can relate to that. How the worst experience is, is not actually the things that happen, it's the fear and the anxiety about what might happen, which mostly doesn't. And when it does, it actually often turns out to not be as bad as we thought it would be. And even if it is that bad, once it's happened, we can start to deal with it. When it hasn't happened, we can't deal with it, which is why it's so difficult. And so what's really important in working with with the difficult experience, whether it be the simple discomfort of the body or the mind and the practice of meditation, of being still, of paying attention, or whether it be the other kinds of experiences that we may encounter that feel difficult or scary that may arise again through mind and body in this process, is to understand very clearly that fear tells us a story about what's going to happen in the future in such a convincing and compelling way that we think the fear has something to do with the future. But it doesn't. The fear is an experience happening right now right here, where we are. And if we can remember that and turn towards it directly and see it for what it is, which is a no doubt powerful and challenging experience, but one that in and of itself is not threatening to us. This is interesting. Fear is not threatening to us. It's simply extremely, excruciatingly uncomfortable. And we'd almost do anything to avoid having to experience it. But once we start to see that that's all it is, that it isn't actually threatening, then we can start to learn what it means to make friends with that experience. Because what it's saying to us is to, to be where you are. If we actually feel the message of fear, it's attention, attention. Attention. And that's what we need to give when fear is arising. We need to give careful attention to what's happening. Rather than looking away, which is completely the opposite of what it's telling us to do. It's saying, look here. The story is saying, look there. But the experience is saying, look here. If we look here, then the quality of the attention it brings can actually serve us. And again, I had a very interesting experience in this regard. when I was once walking in the mountains in New Zealand where I, where I come from and it was a, a, we were an alpine crossing in winter that myself and a couple of friends were doing and there was a place where we had to cross a frozen lake because the normal route in the summer goes under a sort of an avalanche bluff which you really don't want to go underneath in winter so we had to cross this frozen lake and I was leading and just checking the steps every step walking out over this frozen lake and it doesn't get quite as cold there as it does here, so the lakes aren't reliably, you, you're not quite so confident as you would be at whatever it is, 20 below we had today or something. Um, see, I'm thinking centigrade, it wasn't 20 below in Fahrenheit, was it? <laughs> so whatever that was, it was probably it wasn't quite that cold, but cold enough. Anyway, anyway. Um, but at some point I got a little casual because we'd been going, we were 50 yards out into the lake. It seemed solid. I hadn't felt anything that wasn't solid under me. And I started doing it every second or third step. At some point out there in the middle of the lake, I just suddenly went through. Boof! Put my foot down, it just collapsed under me and I went through. And fortunately, very fortunately, I just managed to stop myself and my backpack and my arms and my ice axe flat onto the surface. And I didn't go all the way through. That would have been a different story. But, as you can imagine, the body had quite a strong response to this. (laughs) But I was fortunately able to just very carefully and gingerly, so as not to crack any more of the ice, pull myself out and keep going, having told my friends to go round this bit. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I had never done walking meditation in my life at that point in my life. But I walked so carefully and so mindfully, and in each step that I took, I felt every single sensation that could possibly be felt. Because part of me was wondering if this was the one that was going to go under my foot again. And Very interesting that that was actually what I needed in that place. To be not get casual, to not get, oh, it's fine. Because actually it's a really dangerous situation. And somewhere along the line I managed to forget that and think, oh, I'll be all right. So... That quality of attention is really important. That quality of real, but not coming out of fear. I wasn't actually, I wasn't so much scared at that point because I'd already done just about the worst thing that could happen and here I was, but it was more like, oh, wow, like this immense respect for what's happening. Like, huh, well, I mean, imagine if we were walking and we couldn't be sure the ground would be solid under our feet. We'd really pay attention, wouldn't we? And yet, you know, in a certain way, the ground isn't solid under our feet. I'm not talking about the physical earth. That's pretty solid. In fact, probably the frozen ponds around here are pretty solid as well. Um, But part of what's going on and what we start to confront and see and feel in this journey and this process is the sense of how what we're walking on in terms of what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, is something that isn't solid, that sometimes it feels like We sink through what we thought was solid into a condition of not quite knowing what this is. Not quite knowing how to be in this situation. And we talk about this in terms of not being in control. The body itself isn't in our control. It doesn't do what we want it to or ask it to. It certainly doesn't necessarily age as we would wish it to. Or grow hair in all the places we think it should and not in the places we shouldn't, just as a simple example. It's like, oh, this body has its own intelligence, its own life. And yet, it's so close to our experience that we call it me sometimes or ours. And so, there's a way in which this uncontrollableness of experience leads to a sense of distrust that's profoundly unfortunate. We can't trust our experience if we're not paying attention to it because we'll fall in. If it will fall through the ice effectively. But once we start really paying attention to our experience, we can learn to trust it and to see that even though it's not in our control, that element of attentiveness and that quality of presence that we bring to it in its uncontrollability and in a way because of its unpredictability bringing that quality of attention to it transforms it and there's different ways in which that transformation happens one aspect of the transformation is we see that when we're not paying attention and really inhabiting our body wholeheartedly, living in our heads in the busyness and the activity of mental chatter, that there's a there's a dissatisfaction in that. There's a, a lack of fulfillment and a sense of deep nourishment in that kind of busy, heady, reactivity-driven fear and anxiety-fueled existence. And when we try and come out of that into our body, and Rodney was speaking about this this morning, often it's really quite uncomfortable because when we're in all the reactivity of, of fear and of grasping and of the, the frustrated attempt to control experience, the body is contracted in response to that. And the contracted body is a really uncomfortable place to inhabit. Some of what we've been... <laughs> very kindly inviting you to do is to inhabit something that's quite uncomfortable it doesn't sound that kind in a sense and yet by inhabiting it we allow it to begin to start to open to soften and to to become something rather different than what we might have previously experienced it as because in this we're expressing a certain trust in the immediacy and the actuality of our experience Starting to come from a place of trust rather than a place of distrust, and that trust, as I said, is well founded, if it's accompanying attentiveness. Attentiveness is what allows us to really trust our experience, and we come to know this through practice. Though it may not be something you know for yourself at this time, but I invite you just to to see for yourself if this might be so, and that. In that quality of trusting, there's a sense of openness and connection that's quite natural, that's inherent to the condition of heart and mind. And when heart and mind are not in the grip of fear or craving, when there's more that sense of trust and allowing that we're and relaxing into that, which is what we're inviting again and again here, the body actually is soft and it's open. And in fact, it becomes something rather sweet, in fact, delicious to inhabit the body. It actually, called, it's like, oh yes, and I imagine even in just these first two days, where although much of our experience may not have been that, and I don't want to set up some expectation that it should have been that, but there's probably for many of you, if not all of you, been moments at least where we have really landed and connected, and there's been a sense of, ah, oh, yeah, and it speaks to us. It speaks to us directly in a language that we can't argue with. Of the the truth and the rightness of this conscious attentive inhabiting of our immediate experience and there's a profound healing and nourishing of both body and equally mind that comes from this caring attentive inhabiting of our body from a place of trust And with this, we have to face some of our disinclination to do so. We have to see that it is so much founded on an unwillingness to experience the body as it is. And particularly an unwillingness to experience the discomfort of the body that the body experiences. That we just don't want that. We'd really, wouldn't we? Who wouldn't like it to be comfortable, reliably, consistently, and unbrokenly from here on in? You know? Hands up, I'd be keen. <laughs> We'd love to be comfortable, and why not? There's something quite appropriate in that in a certain way. It's not like we're seeking discomfort here. And yet it's so easy to fall asleep when we're really comfortable. Something about the edge that we encounter is what invites us and encourages us to wake up here and with the difficult the tendency to want to get rid of to push it away something we need to recognize and see if we might start to disentangle ourselves from it when we experience pain when we experience the uncomfortable or the scary what it needs is kindly attention what it needs is for us to be willing to turn towards it rather than away from it but because for many of us the experience of that situation or circumstance of pain, either physical or emotional, can and may have been in the past overwhelming for us, there's a there's a real disinclination or hesitancy to do so. And there's a considerable fear of being overwhelmed again. So it's important to understand how to do this skillfully, which means we don't have to somehow force ourselves or push ourselves. Into contact with the difficult experience, when it arises, we can notice it. We can start to see that there might be an area of intensity, and the intensity might be more than we can comfortably or in a relaxed way be with. And so then, what's more useful, rather than try to sort of stay right there and fight to keep ourselves faced, sort of you know, t- nose to the cold. Oh, so some metaphor, I've got that one wrong. So, but you know, sort of like putting your nose to the grindstone or, sorry, feet to the fire. Yeah, there's a lot of metaphors for it, aren't there? Um, It's more like just notice what's a degree of closeness that actually allows me to stay open and relaxed. And so sometimes what we need to do is back off a little bit. That's really different than running away from it or trying to avoid it or suppress it. It's more like just sensing, okay, this is a little bit too hot to grab right now. I'm just going to get burned and then I not going near it. So what about if I just feel it, oh yeah, it's kind of I can feel the heat, but I'm not getting cooked. And there's a way we can do that just by feeling in our body and saying, oh, okay. What's the space that this needs? Giving the experience space, but staying connected with it. We can start to move through the fear that says, this will overwhelm me. Because once we are aware, when we're attentive and we have our access to the, the, the capacities of an adult, mature mind, we have many more options than we did when we were young and small and immature. And with and I'd say immature negatively, it's just the way it is when we're kids, when we're children. So there's, there's possibilities for us with this to see we can start to explore and work with it, knowing we have permission to change our posture if we need or to move away from something difficult if we feel there's too much pressure there but doing so with a willingness and intention to move back into contact with it gently, softly, with interest and care. And to see that, in fact, just like fear, pain also has its message for us. When we start to deal with the fear, then we're starting, and we're willing to be present with the experience. Then we see that pain also has its message message, and its message is very simple and similar. It says, pay attention here. And it does it very well. We say, no, 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 I don't want to feel that. It's like we're saying, I don't want to hear the message. The message is saying, pay attention here, I don't want to listen. And then we get into trouble and wonder why. And you might think, well, I don't like the sound of that message, you know. Are you sure? So, quite simply, yeah, that's what it's for. And on the same trip as I was referring to when I spoke about being ill, I had the opportunity to work in a street clinic with uh, in Calcutta. Very poor people who lived on the streets and had no medical um, care apart from charitable offerings such as the clinic I was volunteering at. And I learned something shocking about leprosy there, which I'd never conceived of. Having we have this you know idea in the West that it's some horrible disease that makes bits of you fall off. Put it bluntly. Um, and I actually learned there that actually leprosy doesn't cause parts of your body to rot and fall off. Leprosy kills the nerves, so you can't feel pain. And when you're poor and have no education and you don't understand that if you cut yourself and it starts to swell, this is a problem. Things get infected, people burn themselves, cut themselves, it gets infected, then gangrene comes and tissue is lost. And the thing that would, this is what was shocking, the thing that would most transform the life of a leper would be the ability to feel pain. Because then they'd know, ah, take care. Look after this. So, in a way, we could possibly be almost grateful. It doesn't say it means we have to like the experience, but realize that, yeah, we want to know if this is going on and turn towards it. And in doing so, there's a way in which that willingness starts to open us up. That willingness to be with our experience starts to open us up. Because when we push away the difficult or unwilling to feel the difficult, we equally push away and lose contact that with that which is nourishing and that which is delightful and beautiful in this world and feel the sense of distance and the lack of nourishment as a result. And so, Understanding that it has its place allows us, I think, to include the difficult experience more fully. And to understand its value, we could, um, the words of Khalil Gibran in the Prophet, he speaks of pain. He says, Your pain is the shell that encloses your understanding. Just as the stone of a fruit must break so that its heart may stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. And I find it quite a beautiful image, that sense of, in a way, we have to know pain because somehow that opens us up, it breaks us open. In fact, it was, was it, I think Oscar Wilde who said, hearts are made to be broken. And I think, oh, I don't like the sound of that, but there's some truth in it. Not in the kind of cruel or harsh way, but it's like part of what happens here in this practice is that by our willingness to feel our experience as it is, we turn around a very deeply rooted pattern that we're not attended to leads to a desensitization of our experience and our life. The more we withdraw, the more we pull away, the more we avoid, the duller and the number our experience becomes. And the more and more we need to seek stronger and more intense stimulation to feel alive. And if you look at what's going on in our world, and particularly our Western culture, you'll see how it's all getting amplified. The volume's getting turned up, and the speed and intensity of experience that's being delivered you know, at, in any number of different channels through eyes and ears and you know, computers is having to get louder and faster and stronger because culturally we're employing an incredible array of devices to desensitize ourselves. But it doesn't work. It doesn't actually make us happy. And so here we're really going in the opposite direction. And what starts to happen by the very process of coming back into contact with our experience of allowing ourselves to feel To touch and to be touched by the array of of warmth and coolness, hardness and softness, tenderness, rawness, sweetness, sharpness, whatever it is that we encounter, it it starts to tenderize the very being, tenderize the heart and the body. And you know that expression tenderizing. You know it's sometimes used to talk about preparing a tough old piece of sort of tofu. (laughs) for the vegetarians amongst us. You know, and we see, oh yeah, this is what happens. So we learn to be with our experience, to make friends with it, to see what would it be like, and this is the test really, what would it be like? Could I be okay if this was going to be like this from here on in? Because with any experience that arises, it's true that no experience lasts forever. But that's only because we don't last forever. And sometimes things can last for quite a long time. So what would it be like? I'm not trying to say that to scare you or worry you. It's like things mostly do change. But in terms of the training of the heart, the willingness to say, oh, it's like this. And maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's going to be like this for two moments, and maybe it's going to be like this for a long time. I don't know. And would that be okay? Would that be all right? Because if it would be all right, then in fact, there's nothing to fear in this world. And what we can also notice sometimes happening, of course, is that we, we sort of are trying to just make friends with the experience and sort of be nice to it and friendly with it and sort of give it loving kindness and all of that. But actually what we're really sitting there thinking is, well, if I do all this, it'll go away. You know, and we notice that that's why, because it's, we start thinking, it hasn't worked yet. It's not working. You know, I'm being really nice, really kind. But actually that's just a more sophisticated form of aversion and is experienced internally in fact as a form of pressure and as Ram Dass said you can't be with something in order to make it go away because it knows <laughs> it does we think it's something else but it's not it's us or well, it's not apart from that which is trying to make it go away so of course it knows And it's a bit like, you know, someone comes along or you go up to someone and they say, yes, I'll talk to you if you'll go away. It's like, hmm, that was really friendly. So to really meet the experience with kindness, with care. And then the body can start to really speak to us, to offer us the teaching that it has for us. Because we're not just using this experience of attentiveness to the, to the physical organic organism as a grounding place and a place to relax and rest and open into and to establish ourselves. Yes, that's important and incredibly beneficial, but it's equally because it offers some wisdom, some teaching to us that is liberating, that is beneficial. And so what happens when we just let this body be our experience and be in relationship with it without making demands, but with interest, with curiosity? We see, it has its nature, it's alive, it's here, it's now, and it's vibrating, the rhythms, the vitality of life, the resonance and the, the, you know, just the aliveness of it is going on, going on, going on. And there's something quite refreshing about being in contact with that, without getting into how it should be or whether we like it, it's just... Because the very aliveness is there. The vitality is there for us. When we're not judging it or trying to make it into something or improve it. That vitality just actually starts to become available to us. And that vitality naturally brings a sense of interest and curiosity. It's like, oh, what's going on here? So, you know, this body, we tend to call it my body, our body. You know, we think it's ours, but have you ever reflected on the fact that you're not the only inhabitant? I find this really useful, I find it really, you know, liberating, in fact, to reflect on the fact that I am not the only inhabitant of this body. You know, initially it can be rather annoying and I've spent a lot of time trying to get rid of some of the other inhabitants, (laughs) some of whom have cooperated with it and others have quite resolutely stayed in place and the ones particularly between my toes and the family of fungus, you know, at some point I had to decide, well look, obviously, we're going to have to do this together. (laughs) Because these guys aren't going anywhere and they're probably going to be here when I'm gone. It's true. And so, you know, it can go from annoyance to just kind of mild embarrassment. It's like, hmm, you know, I kind of thought this was my home, my place, but actually it turns out to be a co-housing project. (laughs) And when we see it like that, there's a whole shift. It's like, Oh, no wonder it isn't just how I want it to be. Because, you know, to be honest, if it was a democracy, we'd be seriously outvoted. And we believe in democracy, don't we, here in America? So we'd have to give up control to all the. And ultimately, in fact, democracy is going to win out. All those little fellows are going to have their way in the end. And to see it and to sense it, there's a natural, I find it just a sort of an appreciation and gratitude for just getting the chance to be here in this at all, rather than noticing all the ways I'd rather like it to be better or different than it is. It's more like, oh, wow, I've got somewhere to stay. Yeah, this, this is, you know, it's like gratitude for being offered somewhere to stay. And sure, sure we're sharing it with someone else, but okay, better than being out on the street. And so we don't have to hold it so tightly. We don't have to feel so uh, defined by this thing. It's just oh yeah, it's a place to inhabit, to live in and through and from. And you know what is it really that we get so caught up in this body? What's it basically doing? It's a hollow tube, you know, just a hollow tube with some appendages attached, and they're mostly designed to get things to put in one end of the tube. Things go in one end and come out the other. It's a hollow tube. It's quite a long one, actually. And these bits are for getting things to put in it to keep it going. And then these ones are mostly for either getting you to those things to put in it or getting you away from something else that wants to put you in its tube. You know, and it's like this, this is basic biological mechanism going on. And there's some other bits for making more tubes. And you know, at a certain level, this is it. And it's, I think, just so useful to think, oh, yeah, of course. It's just that. It's what's going on. It's life doing its thing. And so much of it it does by itself. The breathing, as we've noticed. Have you noticed that it does it by itself? This is really fortunate. Imagine if the breath needed you to be mindful of in order to work. You know, after three minutes of spacing out, we'd be dead. Of course, if the breath needed us to be mindful of us in order to work, we'd have had to learn really early on to be very good mindfulness of breath practitioners, wouldn't we? We'd have got really good at that or we wouldn't be here. But no, it seems to manage to do it without us. How fortunate. And likewise, we put food in, body digests it, maintains the temperature within a very narrow range that we can survive at. Even though outside it's as cold or as warm as it might be, inside it stays within one or two degrees unless we get ill and then it just varies another one or two degrees and if it's more than that we're in big trouble but the body just keeps on doing that working flat out all the time and if we see we don't have to do all of those basic things that are keeping us alive couldn't we just relax and just say wow hey look at that it's happening without me i don't need to make it happen And then I can really be here. Because it's not just this body going on, there's this consciousness, this awareness, this knowingness that recognizes what's happening, that can explore it, that can understand it, that can reveal and realize the truth of it all. The Buddha once said that within this fathom-long body, I think a fathom is about six feet. (coughs) Within this fathom-long... Well, in fact, he didn't say fathom, did he? That was the original translation. (laughs) He would have used some other word, but I like the word fathom. Within this fathom-long body, all of the Dharma is revealed. So to inhabit this body consciously, with interest, with openness, to relax into its unfoldment its own aliveness and to see what we might discover the very sensitivity and the vulnerability of this organic life and structure that we inhabit and live within and through this is shared this is something we all participate in and sensing and feeling that being open to that we can start to open to something vaster something greater that embraces and encompasses all things, but is not limited to or by any of them. And so this is the invitation of our practice, entering through the gateway of where we are into the vastness of life. Let's sit quietly for a moment or two together. So may we all through this practice and in our lives come to deeply befriend our bodies and to understand and receive the wisdom that they offer us for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings.